Bokshi. Recorded live. Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to indoor air quality radio iaq radio for friday february 25th 2011 this week episode 198 comes to you from studio c in beautiful mckees rocks pennsylvania my name is joe hughes or radio joe and here with me in the studio is the z-man clips lotnick it's a good day joe it's a little snowing out there let's make it a great day huh as uh I was reading about Coach Wooden. Make it a great day. day. Yes, sir. At the controls is our engineer, Austin Stone Cold Novak. All right. Today's show includes, of course, the IAQ radio trivia question and interview with Doc Air Barry Westbrook. Certified industrial hygienist from Tennessee area, Nashville. Looking forward to talking to Barry. We'll have, of course, our halftime and then the roundup. Our technical director is on the line with us, Dr. Dietrich Weil. He'll be joining us uh, probably at halftime and then for the roundup. Also, check out our Facebook page. Uh, we've got the new Facebook page up and running. We've got the blog on the iaqradio.com website. And things are rocking. But before we start, let's thank our sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right. To listen to the show, you can either follow the link from our announcements or follow the link from the iaqradio.com website. It says go to the show. That'll take you over to TalkShoe, and you can join and listen live. Of course, a lot of our listeners download the show later by going to our website. You can stream it right from the iaqradio.com homepage or follow the link again that says go to the show. You can then download it, put it on your iPod, put it in your car, wherever you want to listen. We get people that listen all different kinds of ways. And of course, you can get it from iTunes. We also have those ABIH, IICRC, and ACAC Renewal credits by emailing me and requesting a quiz. My email is joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website 
for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Before we do that, Joe, I'd like to hear you complain about how hard it was to grade 90 quizzes last week. Oh, my. (laughs) It was a long week. A lot of quizzes. We had a lot of quizzes last week. But, hey, that's great. I love it. And we love the comments, and we read them all. And we're also considering getting some uh, guests from those comments, and we've got to ask past guests questions from the comments we get from those quizzes. So it's a a great little uh, resource for listeners to pick up some credits. Okay. Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Email it to cslotnick at cs.com. Or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in your answer via computer. Congratulations. To John Lapotere, MicroShield Environmental Services, Winter Springs, Florida, and to Brian Baker, Custom Vac Limited, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, for answering last week's question, correctly identifying January 1st, 1946 as the date and housing returning war veterans as the reason that the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation was created. Excellent. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, 25th, 2011, has been sponsored by Cochrane & Associates, the Under Air Quality Industries dedicated marketing and public relations firm. Now for this week's trivia question. This unit of measurement of mass is based upon the mass of a single seed of a cereal. This unit of mass measure common to three traditional English mass and weight systems vertipois, apothecaries, and troy. Name it. Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. This week's guest, Barry Westbrook, certified industrial hygienist. Barry founded Doc Air in 2002 to make buildings work better. Since 80% of all the homes that will be in service 30 years from now are already constructed, Doc Air provides diagnostic and remediation services to improve the performance and sustainability of residential homes and commercial buildings, primarily in the uh, Nashville, Tennessee area, although I know Barry goes around the country. He uh, also deals with new construction issues. They um, offer a one-stop source for an integrated high-performance building package that includes HVAC design and testing, thermal insulation, and stormwater management. Mr. Westbrook has a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering physics and has also obtained a number of professional credentials, including professional engineer, certified industrial hygienist, and certified safety professional. His 30-year career includes stints as a construction superintendent, licensed master plumber, industrial process engineer, and environmental consultant. So Barry has a quite diverse and interesting background. We're looking forward to talking to him today about the top 10 myths that he has about indoor air quality and several other issues. Before we do, let's see if we have any intro music. All 
right, let's see if we got uh, Barry. Do we have you on the line? I'm here. All right, great to have you, and uh, looking forward to talking to uh, Doc Air. I think I had it mixed up on my uh, homepage, Air Doc, but uh, how'd you come up with that name, by the way? I like that. Well, it was it was actually uh, there was a precursor called Doc Holiday, which was a a service we provided for hospitals where we went in and we kind of coached them in their environment of care and took care of their document management. And so <clears throat> one of my associates, we were talking about the air quality side of the business, and he said, what about Doc Air? And I was like, sounds good. Sounds good to me. Uh, now, I, I didn't quite finish. I wanted to make sure, and what I decided to do on the instead of adding this in the introduction is to add it as a part of the first question. You state in, in the bio that, you consider your role now to be primarily that of a building scientist and a consumer advocate for better construction quality. And it goes on to state that you do expert witness services and uh, et cetera, and a lot of seminars with code officials and things of that nature. Uh, as a certified industrial hygienist, a former professional engineer, and with the other varied background you had, like the you know plumbing, et cetera, what made you decide to focus yourself on indoor air quality issues and kind of uh, it seems like you've uh, you're no longer as involved in some of the other issues you used to be part of? Well, we're firmly convinced that it, that we need to look at buildings as systems. And uh, when I started Doc Air, I was kind of taking advantage of some of the certifications as a certified industrial hygienist. There was a tremendous demand for mold-related services. But as I got into diagnosing and trying to correct mold problems, I began to believe that there's really no reason to have mold in a building. In other words, if you if you give me a building and let and and let me do what I need to do, I think I can guarantee that you won't have mold. Um, so we we started looking at all of the problems with buildings, some of them that are almost an epidemic, and we just we began to see that it's not just about diagnosing problems. It's about how, what are you going to do about it once you find out that you have a problem? Cliff? Yeah, Barry, my crawl space has mold. I need more ventilation. In your experience, is this myth more of a problem with homeowners, builders, architects, contractors, or all the above? Well, it's, it's probably the most important issue that I face every day. It's one of the most confusing. Uh, we have a lot of crawl spaces in Middle Tennessee and Southern Kentucky. Builders have become comfortable building on crawl spaces. I'm not particularly fond of them myself. I feel like there are better ways to build uh, a building, an energy-efficient building. But there are times when you're on a hillside where you may decide that that's the best way to do it. But we know from quite a bit of research that's been done where the moisture problems come from. When I was uh, growing up and getting into the building industry, I always believed that you vented the crawl space because there was some water coming up from the ground and the, the vents were there to let the water out. But what we learned is that most of the moisture problems that we have in crawl spaces is actually due to condensation uh, during the hot summer months. This past summer being a good example, here in Nashville where it was one of one of the hottest summers in history. So if you take hot, humid air from the outside and bring it into a crawl space where it may be below 68 degrees in the, in the, in the hottest part of the summer, the floor joists and the subfloor and the ductwork and the insulation are going to sweat. And when they do, 
uh, they get wet, then mold will follow. So if you don't want to have mold in a crawl space, you've got to do something to, to be able to control the moisture levels in there. You know, I noticed in a recent article, I was just reading an article about um, some of the issues that come up with respect to indoor air quality when we do energy efficiency upgrades in homes. And there was a statement in there by a pretty well-known building scientist that if we hadn't decided that we needed to air condition our homes and hadn't decided that we needed to add insulation to our homes, that crawl spaces would still work just fine. Is that similar to your opinion on things? Yes. I think that I've I've made that same statement that these crawl space problems arose primarily due to air conditioning um, back in the days when we didn't. Because once once you start lowering the temperature of a surface to below the dew point, it's going to sweat and it's going to get wet. Uh, back in the days when when I was a kid, we didn't have central air conditioning. Uh, we didn't have to worry about that. Now, what about when you get a, a you know a crawl space that's got a good bit of growth in there, microbial growth, mold growth, whatever you want to call it? With respect to cleaning that up, remediating that, what are your thoughts on the different methods used? I mean, some people just go in and they, you know they just wipe it down. Some people sand it. Some people use the soda blasting, dry ice blasting. I'm just curious. Do you have a preferred method for yourself, for your people? Well, I think that's where uh, my consumer ad- advocacy comes in because what I believe to be true is that it really depends on what you want. Um, if I go into a crawl space that's 50 years old and, it, and it's got some accumulation of mold growth, it's clear to me that that what I observed there uh, that day was probably what would be, it would have been like a year a year ago and a year before that and a year before that. So I think it kind of gets down to why is it an issue? Is it an air quality issue? Is it a structural issue? Um, why do you care? And I think that if the if the affected parties are educated on all the different aspects of the of the problem, then they can decide what they want to do. I'm not sure I have. I mean, I can I can answer the questions about the problem, but I think the ultimate decision about what to do about it is really up to the people that are going to be living in the building. Yeah, that's I like that attitude. I mean, you know, we don't have to necessarily make things sterile, or we can't make things sterile. So you know, we can determine with the client what level of cleanliness they desire in their crawl space, and then take it from there. Now, we've got a text from a listener, and I think Cliff wants to cover that one. Yeah, well, I think one comment before we move on is, is one thing that's important is, you know, I th- there are a lot of ways to remediate those crawl spaces, and some cost a whole lot more than others. And I think, uh, you know, trying to give the customer uh, the best quality remediation at the lowest expense probably, uh, you know, would be a worthy goal. But the, the question from the... Uh, listener is what options exist to reduce the level of humidity in crawl spaces Barry well I think that I look at a crawl space like a like a small basement and I think actually in, in England that, that they call crawl spaces they call them basements um, and so you you really want to use the same type of logic that you would use if you had a basement and you had a moisture problem in the basement you you probably wouldn't just knock a hole in the wall uh, of your basement if you had a moisture problem in there and hope that that was going to solve the problem. So uh, 
what what you need to do is to figure out where's where's the moisture coming from is it diffusing through the walls is it coming in through the air as we know in the crawl space typically like in july well actually starting in may june july august september in tennessee there's a good part of the time that we that the crawl space is below the dew point of the outside air and it's going to be sweating so if you don't want to have mold in your crawl space what we would suggest is that you put a we call it a liner system some people call it encapsulation but essentially seal it up from the outside and we like to put a dehumidifier in there we feel like that that is the most economical and practical and and um, energy efficient approach um, there is you also hear people talk about condition crawl spaces and that's one that I've spoken numerous times about I think that that will eventually kind of go out of the codes. The idea is we're going to take just a little bit of conditioned building air and just dump it into the crawl space. And although that may sound like a, a good idea to some, I've seen it cause very, very significant problems. What kind of problems have you seen that cause? Well, there was a, there was a gentleman that came to a trade show that I was uh, appearing at, and he looked at our encapsulated crawl space systems and thought it was a great idea and so he built his new house just north of nashville and he put a liner system in and <clears throat> it was his understanding from talking to different experts that what he needed to do was condition the crawl space so the builder uh did as he asked and they took a basically opened up uh put a, a takeoff on the main uh, duct system and they basically were just dumping some air into the crawl space so the idea being that if the air is good enough for the house, the rest of the house, it'd probably be good for the crawl space as well. But what happened was this. <clears throat> he called me up and said that, he said, I did what you said. I built this house, and I basically did it the way that you had recommended. But he said, I've got a terrible mold problem. And so I agreed to go out and take a look at it. And here's what happened. Of course, the thermostat controlling the air is up in the house on the, on, in the hallway, the thermostat has no idea what the temperature is in the crawl space. It was a hot summertime, and when I went into this crawl space, the temperature in there was in the very low 60s. And what, what I think was going on was when the, the air conditioning cycled off, outside air drifted into the crawl space, and then it condensed, water condensed out of the air. So when I went into this crawl space, it was like one of those little slipping slides that you played on when you were a kid. You could literally just slide across the whole crawl space because there was water everywhere. So there was an example of where just dumping cold, cold air into the crawl space could actually cause mold to grow. Well, I, I guess one question. In that particular situation, the one thing that you did that was functional, or one thing that you did that was functionally different is you, you are an advocate of liners. This guy put in a liner. Uh, you were also an advocate of dehumidification. Did that? Did he have a dehumidifier in that crawl space that was like the slip and slide? No, he didn't. And that's that's where this whole issue of uh, uh, building science gets a little tedious. I tell people that if you understand dew point and you understand how air flows in and out of a building, you can do most everything that we do at Doc Air. Uh, and it's easy to state, but sometimes it's a little, it does get confusing. But 
to to the builder and to the customer and to the codes people everything it looked like they had done the right thing but sometimes little things make big differences and in this case what he thought he was doing by dumping uh building air into the crawl space was just a bad idea <clears throat> now let's um there's another myth on on the list of myths that you gave us, and that was that water in basements is usually due to high water table, or maybe I have a wet weather spring. First, what? Uh, let's make sure we know what a wet weather spring is. We're all on the same page there. Well, it may be uh, a local term, but uh, I hear it all the time. Uh, someone will call up the builder and say well, I've got water under my house, and the builder will say, well, you know, we've got a lot of wet weather springs in that area, and basically what he's saying is it's not really my problem. <laughs> and so I believe is that if you're, building, if you're building houses and you don't know how to build a house without building over wet weather spring, maybe that you're in the wrong business. But um, the, there's so much confusion about how, where, where does water come from. You know, the real water table, if you're drilling a well here in Middle Tennessee to, for your water supply, you're going to go down many, many feet. You're certainly not going to be able to dig it with a post hole digger. Um, and so the water, the water that's, uh, uh, that's a problem in basements and a problem in crawl spaces around here, what I tell people is assume the most simple solution. There's uh, a gentleman called uh, named Occam who, who had a term called Occam's razor, and it was to always assume the simplest answer unless you have information that would cause you to believe a more complicated answer. And I urge my customers to first look at the water coming off their roof first um, and assume that that's probably the water that's under their house before they start looking for other uh, esoteric problems. Okay, that's good. I think that's a great point in that, you know, obviously we're going to look at the most obvious things first, but when you do have issues where there's one of these wet weather springs, are there any differences in the way you design the um, the fix to the moisture problem? Well, what we always try to do is if water is coming into a building from, from a, a neighboring property or a hillside, what we want to do is intercept it. We don't want to try to. Uh, we we don't like the idea that we have to put a sump pump in. When, if we have to put a sump pump in down here, we kind of consider it to be a, a, a term of surrender. So, not that we the sump pumps don't have their place, but what I would like to have is a building that would stay dry without having to let water come into the building envelope. Um, one of the reasons for that is over time, if water is actually finding a way to get inside my building. Uh, it may not be this year or next year, but at some point it's going to cause erosion of my footing, and you're going to see cracking in the foundation and that kind of thing. So we want to stop water before it ever gets to the building. You know, the rule is that if you're building a, a house, the water off the roof has to get away from the building, and it has to stay away from the building. And if you have a, uh, we have some methods that we use, but any method will work if you if you uh, follow the rules. Okay, now there's another one here. The myth is I can lower my cooling costs and increase roof life by installing powered attic fans. Uh, do powered attic fans ever make sense, Barry? Most of the time, no. And the venting the attic is mainly for moisture control. Um, when I was growing up, I always heard that if you didn't vent your attic that your roof the, the life of your shingles would be affected. 
Um, of course, I always heard that if you didn't vent the attic, that it would make your, your cooling costs go up. But we found out, actually, we have data. There's a gentleman down in Oak Ridge National Laboratory, Dr. William Miller, who's done lots and lots of research, and he can provide anyone with the data for this. But it turns out that the the life of the roof or the shingles has to do with what's at the surface. And the surface temperature of a shingle does not change much at all by venting the attic. Um, and then as far as the savings on cooling costs, it turns out that most of the heat that comes into your building from the roof is actually radiant energy. It's not from conduction from the hot air. It's actually radiant energy, the same type of energy that comes from the sun that's being radiated from the hot roof down to the ceiling of your, uh, of your or actually into the insulation and the ceiling joist. So if you want to try to save money on your cooling bills, the best way to do that is either put some type of reflective foil in the attic or add some more insulation, or even we, we, uh, what we like is the spray foam insulation on the, on the decking of the attic. On the, under, on the roof deck, under, on the other side of the roof deck? Yeah, it's the same concept as the encapsulated crawl space, but it's an enclosed attic assembly. Um, we have a lot of, of heating and air conditioning units that are located in the attic, and it turns out in the summertime the temperature up there gets to be 145 degrees or hotter. So you've got all of your ductwork and your air handler essentially in an oven. So if you can, uh, if you basically draw the line, basically isolate the heat at the at the uh, roof itself, you can keep that that attic area much much cooler. You know, that's another thing. I don't know if you ever deal with this or not in your climate, but I'm just curious. Um, obviously, you get some cold weather. And uh, do you get any ice damming in that area at all? Well, that would be one way to keep that from happening. I mean, if you spray the foam insulation on the on the sheathing, you're thermally isolating the, the roof from the rest of the house. So you're less likely to melt that roof uh, the ice and snow on there. Of course, we haven't had that much snow. This is this year has been an exception. We've had a lot of snow here in Tennessee, but it seems like that for four or five years we just got no snow. Um, but we we don't have the ice damming problems that you have up north. Okay. But I are familiar with it. Well, let's uh, let's move. Let's do one more before halftime. We've got ten that we'd like to go through, and one is that you know there's a myth that you know my house is too hot or too cold, so I must need a new or improved or refurbished HVAC heating, ventilation, and air conditioning unit. What can you tell us about that myth? Well, when you invest in a, a heating and air conditioning system, that's there's a lot of uh, capital cost that goes into that, and a lot of resources. I hate to see someone dispose of a perfectly good unit just because they're not comfortable because most of the time it has to do with poor ductwork design, uh, the uh, what I call the worst environmental problem that nobody's ever heard of, which is duct leakage. I don't know what it's like up in Pennsylvania, but I can tell you here in the, in the, the uh, Nashville area that duct leakage is just a, a terrible problem. Uh, the supplies and the returns are poorly sealed. I think that's going to change as we get into building Energy Star homes. But for the last oh, 20, 30 years, there's just been 
no emphasis on trying to make sure that the ductwork systems are sealed properly. So that would be like the first thing you'd look at as opposed to replacing it. Let's make sure what we've got is working properly in the first place. Absolutely. And I would say in most cases, you, you're going to assume that, that the builder or the HVAC contractor put the system in. It should have been matched to the house. There's usually a tendency to, to put a larger unit in that is needed. So if you're not, if you're not comfortable my first guess would be that there's probably things you can do with the existing system to make it work better, along with some other weatherizing techniques like sealing the building envelope and maybe putting some more insulation in the attic and that kind of thing. Okay. Joe, why don't we Cliff, have a comment yeah, on the... We've yeah, we got have, a couple I, texts coming in. Let me let, let Cliff handle these. Okay. Um, let's see. The, the first one is, um, are you recommending spray foam uh, to be used in attics of existing homes. Yes. Okay. It's uh, anytime that you retrofit something, you may not, you you may have to have a higher standard of payback than you would with the when you're putting in uh, when you're constructing the home. But I personally believe that 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 spraying the the foam insulation in the attic is one of the best ways we have of reducing peak electrical demand um, here in in the uh, the Tennessee Valley area, the uh, TDA is is trying to promote energy conservation and, and reduce peak demand by helping people um, Im improve the energy efficiency of their homes. And I, when you look at where the peak occurs, which is usually in the summertime, in the hot summertime, late in the afternoon, I think that being able to cool that attic down would be one of the best things you could possibly do to reduce that peak load. Why don't you take the next one, Jim? All right. Then uh, I guess the um, the follow-up. Well, let me, you know what? Let's go to halftime. We've got a couple other. We've got a couple flying in here, Barry. I want to make sure that we give them uh, their time, and we also get to our other questions here. So listeners, hang in there with me. We've got one long one and one short one to follow up. But before we do, let's go to halftime quickly. Right. Our association sponsors are the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental and consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. 
And, of course, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfactswithanx.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Okay, we're back for the second half of our interview with Doc Air, Barry Westbrook out of the Nashville, Tennessee area. And Barry, we've, we're, we're going to follow up on a couple quick uh, text questions. Let's finish up the discussion in attics first. We were discussing using a spray foam to uh, apply it to the underside of the roof deck, essentially, to make that attic a conditioned space. I think as in particular in areas where people are using the attic as the area where they're locating their HVAC system. Um, I've got a question, and then I'm, I've got a listener question. Number one, are you an advocate for the open cell or the closed cell phone? Well, I'm, I like both those products. I, there's people that, that sell those products. There's all this heated debate about uh, whether you should use closed cell or open cell. They, they have different characteristics. Um, and you just, what you want to do as a consumer, you want to add up the different characteristics, including cost, because the closed cell product is quite a bit more expensive than the open cell. The open cell product is great sound attenuator. So if you want, if you're in a noisy area or you want a quiet, uh, quiet room, you might choose the open cell product. Um, the closed cell foam is better if you're if you think you're going to be exposed to any kind of wetness then it's going to be probably your product of choice if you're looking for any type of structural rigidity the closed cell product has a little strength to it so it'll actually stiffen up your building um there's some other characteristics i think we can go into a lot of those but i I think that it's kind of like somebody saying do you like a diesel engine or a gasoline engine uh you can find people that like either one and you just got to understand kind of what the pros and cons are of those different products. I like that approach. Thanks for that. I'm glad I asked. Now, with respect to the, you know, retrofit of older homes, that we've got another text. And, you know, how do you dehumidify the attic of the older home when you've got new spray foam in there? And when you do this, obviously, there's going to be a, a substantial amount of accumulated debris in that attic. Do you have them clean the attic out first because it's now going to be in communication with the shared living space? Well, there's a, there are a lot of questions in that question. Yep. Uh, first of all, I think that there's this idea that somehow the attic is going to be this wet wet, wet area, that, that you're going to trap moisture in the attic. Well, it, it just doesn't happen. Um, whenever you talk about moisture, you're really looking at uh, the back to the dew point issue again. So how cold does it have to get before the attic is going to sweat? Well, we did some we did some calculations and we found out that for you to have the attic sweat here uh, uh, with with five inches of this foam insulation in the attic, you would it would have to get down to sixty degrees below zero. Hmm. Well, if it gets that cold outside, probably even in Pennsylvania, your whole house is going to be sweating. <laughs> sixty below, so, I haven't hey, seen. I gotta I have, say. <laughs> Well, you're not going to be up in the attic wondering about what's going on there. You're going to be looking at your windows and your kitchen and watching the water streaming off. And by that time, you'll probably be out trying to figure out how to thaw out your pipes and that kind of thing. So it's really uh, overblown. Um, the the sweating or the moisture problem in the attic is, is just it's just not really a problem. 
Right, what about the cleaning of any accumulated debris? And, and I assume you also remove the existing insulation that's typically above the ceiling on the first or second floor, depending on whether it's a one- or two-story home. Well, we, we took advantage of the, uh, the federal tax incentives and the TVA rebate to actually install the foam insulation in, in our house. Okay. And I have not yet removed any of the insulation in the floor. I mean, it's blown in fiberglass in most places. What we did do is we went and we put additional flooring down over the fiberglass and, and created more storage. So whenever we have guests, uh, my wife, that's one of the, the uh, tourist attractions, is to take them up to the attic and show them all the nice storage that we have. <laughs> all right. Well, let's let's move to the next myth here. And um, if we have any other texts, I'll let you know about that. And there was one about leaky air ducts, but I think we've already covered that one. We may have to go back and uh, discuss. Oh, and I've got another one. Yeah, let me get this one because I, I like this question, Barry. And it goes back to our discussion of um, crawl spaces. Uh, we've got a listener that's been trying to resolve a situation in a crawl space where water seems to actually seep through the walls. The walls are a brick veneer over a cinder block. Uh, heavy rain against the brick over a day or two causes water to seep through the brick and cinder block, so it creates a high humidity. Any any uh, recommendations for that listener on options on fixing that? Okay, well, two things. The first thing is, if he has a vented crawl space, uh, then probably if he has a moisture problem in the crawl space, it has it has very little to do with the water on the ground. And back to our, and this is information, if he goes out to a website called, uh, well, he can go to the Doc Air website, or he could go to uh, a website called crawlspaces.org, and it will explain that. But it takes a lot of energy for water to evaporate. And by the time water could evaporate from the ground in his crawl space and get into the air, if, you, if the vents are open, you're going to have air that's going to be coming in to purge that. So there are really two different questions. Now, as far as the water, keeping the water out, what I like to do is I, go, I like to do an inspection of the perimeter of the building, and I look for what we call bellies, and that's low spots around the foundation. And what I, wanted, what I want to be confident of when I leave is that there's no way that if I basically just poured water next to the building that it would tend to flow toward the, the building wall. If I can't say that after my inspection, then I'm going to say that there's a good chance that this that we're not doing as good a job as we need to do to keep water away from this building. So but the, if uh, I'm just going to say, so the first thing is drain the rain away from the building. Period. The rain. I may steal that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I stole it from somebody else, so you can <laughs> certainly steal okay. it. Okay. One of, the, one of the simple things we do, I've, I've actually stumbled on a book at a yard sale one time, and it was written by a guy named Dr. Edgar Sequist. It was called Diagnosing and Repairing House Structure Problems. And he was talking about kind of a typical approach for trying to, to deal with water with buildings, and he said, we really build moats around buildings. That's the typical approach is to dig up, basically dig up around the building, put rocks in there, and you're essentially encouraging water to flow toward your building. Uh, he He promoted another approach. His, his approach was do everything you possibly can to not let water ever get to your building wall. So I have, uh, over the years, we've kind of taken his advice, and so when we go in to waterproof a building, we'll dig out the soil next to just the first few, few feet of soil next to the building, 
we backfill that soil and mix it with bentonite clay and compact that and try to essentially build, make a water plug so that water can't get into the building at that point. Interesting. All right. Well, let's keep moving here. Um, oh, in, in, in our case, the water is seeping through above the ground line, uh, right through the wall, three or four, three to, three or four feet above the ground. <laughs> Interesting. That, that one seems easier. If, if the water is coming above the ground, we haven't, we haven't met the first requirement, which was get the rain, <laughs> drain the rain. I'll give you the Steebrook interpretation. Uh, drain the rain from the, the plane, plane down and away from the building onto your neighbor's property. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mrs. Hughes. You gave me the <laughs> excellent, Barry. Let's move to the next one here. We're, we're going to run out of time if we don't. Um, let's see. When we're dealing with uh, renovations, and I know you're dealing a lot with respect to, um, you know, heating and cooling, mostly cooling in your case. What types of renovations uh, give homeowners... Oh, wait, let me make sure... Yeah, what types of renovations give homeowners the most bang for their buck when it comes to lowering the cost for heating and cooling? I know you mentioned one of the big ones was making sure the ductwork was properly sealed. Uh, what would be another big big issue with respect to helping save money on heating and cooling? The number one recommendation I would make to anyone is first seal the leaks in the building, which includes the heating and air conditioning system. People don't realize how significant they are. Um, you, would, you wouldn't believe how many times I go into a building that has ducts that are disconnected from the boots and actually dumping water or air into the crawl space, and I'll meet with the homeowner and she'll say, well, I know I need windows. And I'm thinking, windows are your last, <laughs> or should be the last thing on your list. But windows are sexy, they're fairly easy to sell, but they don't provide the, the best return on investment. In other words, some caulk, weather stripping, and that kind of thing, and knowing where to caulk and weather strip, that's going to be your big bang for the buck. And a lot of your heat, I assume, also um, you know, goes up through the roof as opposed to in and out through the walls. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll name some of the, the what I call the building abominations. Okay. Leaky can lights, recess lights. Oh, yeah. Okay, thank you. Like, it will literally suck the air out of your house. Uh, attic access doors. The one that we see over and over down here is a little piece of Luan um, wood that makes no air seal, and it's above your head, out of sight, out of mind, but they leak a, t a terrific amount of air. And a lot of times they're placed right next to a return in the ceiling so you can one of the tools that I use most is a little smoke tube, which makes it very clear where the air is moving. And you can actually see air being pulled out of the attic and running right over to the return in the summertime. So you're pulling 145-degree air out of the attic, or in the, in the wintertime, maybe zero-degree air. Very inefficient. Um, what else? The return air plenum, if I could just go one place in a home, if you gave me five minutes... I would run as fast as I could to return air plenum, pull the filter out, get my flashlight, and look down in there. And what I probably 19 times out of 20, I'm going to see terrific leaks back into the wall cavities, into the attic, or into the crawl space. Good points. Excellent. Excellent, Barry. Let's, uh, let me ask you a quick question, and then Cliff wants to move on to the next myth. I know this is one of his subjects of interest but before i do with respect to new you know you do a lot of new construction what 
What's the most common type of new HVAC systems you're seeing in Tennessee today? I mean, are, are you getting geothermal heat systems in there? Are you getting, uh, you know, uh, the heat pumps? Uh, what what type of systems are you getting? Yeah, the geothermal, this actually happens to be kind of a mecca for geothermal here in the Middle Tennessee area. One of the reasons is because we have limestone. It's kind of counterintuitive, but actually limestone is a great uh, material to, to bore through because... It stays it stays open, so you don't have to case the wells. So it turns, and it's also a fairly good uh, conductor of heat energy. the The biggest thing that's promoted geothermal is the federal um, rebates or tax incentives. When you take any product and reduce its cost by thirty percent, makes a big difference. So um, the tax incentives have kind of changed the priorities. About in other words, if I were getting ready to build a home in, in Middle Tennessee, I think that I would definitely consider geothermal just because of the federal tax incentives. Also, I think it might help you when you when you sell your home in the future. Uh, I call it kind of defensive or risk management, but I don't think that you can afford to assume that the future buyer is not going to be very concerned about the type of building systems that, that are in the building. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, typically builders have in this area anyway, have paid very little attention to what I call the guts of the building, the things that really make it work. I uh, picked up a big folder last year, uh, the uh, basically the Parade of Homes. I looked through that, and there were maybe a hundred and something pages of homes, and I could not find one thing about the heating and air conditioning systems in these homes. And that's all those pages. And I just thought that was astounding. Lots I mean, of granite. car home. I bet you saw a lot of granite uh, countertops and so yeah. on. <laughs> a lot of granite. Yeah, okay. Um, well, let, let me get Cliff in here because I know he wanted to go to this next question. It's one we've discussed before. I'd like to get your thoughts. Go ahead, Cliff. Yeah, Barry, what are your thoughts about removing carpet, removing wall-to-wall carpet from the interior of a home to improve indoor air quality? Well, I, I think that that is a uh, kind of a philosophical discussion. You could you could be on either side of that argument and make make cases. What I think that 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 issue brings up is the fact that most people don't really know where their air comes from, and I think the reason for that is because air is invisible. If you could see air like you could see water, I think we'd be a lot more concerned about where you know air leaks coming in through you know whatever holes and openings and probably wouldn't tolerate the amount of lift we have in buildings. <clears throat> but since we can't see that, I think people get confused. Uh, I can go into a crawl space, for instance, and I can take my little smoke tube and I can show you that air from the crawl space is going right up through penetrations in the floor, right up through uh, leaks in the returns into your home. So what's in the crawl space is typically what's in your house. And now down here, the crawl space is probably not where you'd want to pull your clean air from. <laughs> you know, we got radon issues. We have dust. We, uh, this, you know, Middle Tennessee happens to be, uh, we have a lot of, pretty much anything that will grow up north will, will grow here, and anything that grows down south will grow here. So we have a lot of pollen and, and that kind of thing as well. So what I think about the carpets is people want to point to what's going on inside the building as the source of the pollution when I think that most of the pollution in homes is actually from the outside. So the key is keep it out in the first place and then maintain whatever type of 
finish you use it doesn't uh, make as big of a difference as keeping the you know the problem the problems out in the first place right ventilation is just uh we have what's called naturally ventilated homes and that sounds organic and healthy but what it really means is that the way we get our ventilation air in our buildings is from leaks it's not a very scientific approach uh it's not the way you build a new home or new school or a new hospital you always have something called uh, makeup air or ventilation air, but it's kind of ironic that in our homes where we spend most of our time, we just kind of like depend on the air just kind of leaks in from wherever. So that's part of the problem. We're, we're, I think the, the public is beginning to learn more about where does their air come from. And instead of blaming the carpet or some other source, they realize that all the, the dust and stuff they're breathing, maybe, maybe where did it come from? Did it come from the crawl space or what or where? All right, I've got another quick myth because I know we discussed this quite a bit on the show, but I want to get your thoughts. Uh, the myth is I have mold, but it is not the bad kind. Oh, boy, there's, a, there's one we hear quite regularly. Um, let me just ask you this. Is it ever important to know what type of mold is growing in a home or building? I think the answer is yes. I hate to say that the answer is yes, but it probably is yes. Um, but it is a frustrating um topic because I do a lot of work with realtors and I keep trying to explain to them that if they've got mold growing on a wall, what difference does it make what kind of mold it is? And even if I tell them what kind of mold it is, what what are they going to do with that information? Yeah, what, what will you do different that you wouldn't have done anyway, right? So I think that it's, uh, when, when you start taking lots of samples and providing ambiguous information to clients that you know is not going to do nothing more than confuse them and add to their anxiety. I don't really think professionally you've done your job. Um, I feel like my job is to try to make things better and not to confuse the issue. And so if I just hand somebody a laboratory report that has a lot of data that, you know, is even tough for me to understand, I can't really expect the, uh, the realtors or the homeowners to, to know what to make out of it. All right. Well, I'd love to talk more to you about that, but I want to make sure we get these other couple of myths discussed and uh, we can talk about mold some other time. But um, last week we had Don Fugler on from the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. Great guy. CMHC is known for being the place where the phrase, I believe it was, build tight, ventilate right comes from. Uh, the next myth on your list is houses are becoming too tight. Uh, what particular? Let's just ask why. Why is that a myth uh, in your eyes? Well, for one reason, it's so easily solved. If you call me up and say, "Hey, Barry, I think my house is too tight," I'd say, "Joe, why don't you go open the window?" <laughs> that's so, when I tell people that, they look at me and they blink, like, "Well, that's just crazy." But. <laughs> You know, it's kind of like when I grew up, that's kind of the way we ventilated. You know, we uh, we didn't have central heat and air. Uh, in the summertime, you got hot. In the wintertime, you got cold, and you tried to stay as comfortable as possible. But air uh, ventilation and, and basically clean air was kind of like the last issue on, the, you know, our concerns. Uh, now, over time, what's happened is we have focused on the way we seal up buildings. We've, we've done a good job of having windows that you could – that are – fairly airtight and wind and doors that are airtight so i think what we've done is we've changed the where the air comes in i think at one time uh air was leaking in through i guess the vertical plane through the walls 
And now what I'm seeing here, at least in Middle Tennessee, is we've changed the direction. Air tends to now either come from the attic down or from the crawl space. But we've basically sealed up the vertical perimeter of the building, and we've got huge leaks in the ductwork and in the, in the ceiling that basically creates kind of a chimney. All right, let's do. Do you want to go to Roundup, Cliff, or do you want to ask one more and then go to Roundup? Yeah, I just had one more that you know, it's on our list. Um, Barry, what's your opinion of sampling in uh, you know fungal contamination situations? Uh, you know, a pre-remediation sampling and then post-remediation verification sampling. Well, I'm working on a project right now where there was just this. Uh, inordinate amount of sampling done of everything and anything and of course the insurance company is asking me to come in and help them determine what would be the reasonable amount of sampling that's done I think that probably there's a lot of injustice done to remediation contractors I've, I've seen remediation contractors go out and, and clean something up to the point where there's just nothing there and then they have somebody that's supposed to know what they're doing go out and take an air sample and tell them that they failed and it turns out what they really sampled air from another area because they didn't understand the you know where the air was coming from. So I always urge my uh, anyone to don't collect a sample unless you know what you're going to do with it. Always collect a sample to confirm a hypothesis. Don't just collect a bunch of samples and then try to put them together like a jigsaw puzzle. All right. Now let me uh, let's go to the roundup, Cliff, if that works for you, and then we'll bring Doctor Wow in. He'll have some comments, and I've got one question i want to make sure we cover here and i'm sure cliff has one to add hang in there with us for one second barry all right All right, I guess that was more like 10 seconds. But anyway, we've got uh, Dr. Dietrich Wow on the line. We still have Barry uh, Barry Westbrook, our, our CIH doc air on the line here. And uh, Dieter, any, any comments or questions? Oh, yeah. Do we have another hour? <laughs> I had a feeling you might have a few on this one, Dieter. Oh, my God. This is wonderful. First of all, I hope uh, our listeners were listening very carefully and astute. Uh, Barry made, I think, I mean, 20 wonderful, wonderful points. For the young listeners, um, since I'm a mechanical engineer and Barry is a mechanical engineer, uh, mechanical engineering is a damn good background for the rest of your life. Um, the other thing, I have one big thing over here, the two points. I don't know how many people know what the hell a two point is, <laughs> but it certainly is a havoc uh, in certainly uh, in, in many in, uh, in, in, uh, instances. The other thing is that damn crawl space. I don't know how much I heard about it, and I have been saying that for about five years. Today we have sensors, sensors which measure temperature and relative humidity, and therefore they know what the dew point is. If you want to, and you can, there is no doubt about it, you can vent either an attic 
or a closed space. Comma, however, when the situation is right. That's when I open my window. Uh, I don't open my window when I know that I am inheriting something that my house can't handle. So I don't know why somebody hasn't gotten into that, where you measure the inside temperature, the outside temperature, you measure this and that, and then you turn the fan on. And if yeah, the set points are not right, you turn the ventilation off. Um, another wonderful, wonderful point that, that I'm interested in, if I would have a lot of mold growth in my house, I really don't give a damn what it is. I want to get rid of it. It's almost like saying, yeah, I have a water leak in my house. Now I'm going to get uh, myself an instrument that reads the pH of that water. <laughs> uh, I don't think the pH makes a difference anymore. Uh. You want to get rid of it. And I think, and I just jotted down a couple of other things, and I just, yeah, how many samples do you have to take? Well, a million is better than one, but uh, obviously there is a golden uh, middle somewhere over there where you say, and you use common sense, and that is the beauty uh, with Barry's uh, remarks, they're all based on common sense, which is not very common. I stole that one from uh, Joe Hughes. <laughs> <laughs> And, um, and I said, hey, guys, sit back and think about it. Don't do it because somebody says. And another thing is, uh, Joe knows that, and um, uh, I worked for the Bayer Chemical Corporation, and I was in the forefront when we were introducing uh, insulation materials uh, based on uh, polyurethane foam. And I tell you one thing, if you do it right, there isn't anything better than that in your attic. I did that at a friend's house years ago. That's 30 years ago. We used off-spec materials, which wasn't good enough for the customers, and we made insulation uh, uh, out of it in one friend's house. He can, he can heat his house with a candle. <laughs> uh, it's unbelievable. And, uh, we also got some free beer, and we used this material in a beer distributor. It's cool, uh, cooler. <laughs> they said, oh, yeah, we can do that. And I said, guys, how much How much do I have to pay for it? And I said, nothing. I said, what do you mean? I said, we just stop by once in a while and pick up a case of beer. But anyway, it's a marvelous, marvelous uh, material. you got to know what you're doing with it. And just, I have another one with a roof over there. That is right. The temperature underneath the roof does it and has nothing to do with the life of the, of the uh, shingles that you have on there. It's the UV light. And if you ventilate the heck out of your attic, it doesn't, it doesn't help you a lot. But um, as I said, I think, I think there are so many points that, that were so important for everybody's uh, knowledge. I think we, we, we ought to have uh, uh, Barry back for another hour, for sure, and then we can go into a couple of more de uh, details. And I'm going to shut up now. <laughs> well, Dieter, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining oh. us again this week. All right, let me go back to uh, Barry. I've got one wrap-up question for myself. You've got a myth, um, insulation products with the same R value will perform virtually the same. And, and I was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit 
for our listeners and why that's a myth. And if you've got to run, I understand. But if you've got an extra minute or two, we can certainly run over. No, I'm, I'm fine. Uh, well, it goes back to what Dr. Wild was saying about the polyurethane foam. What, uh, when I try to convey kind of how insulation works in a seminar, I, I explain that air is actually the best uh, insulator. The problem with air is it won't sit still. It moves around, and that's where we lose, we lose heat through convection. So most insulation products are really designed to keep, just keep little air pockets still. So if you want to, uh, if you want to maximize the efficiency of your wall cavity, what you want is what I call full wall insulation. And that means you, you don't want to allow air to be flowing around and around. And so that's one of the problems with fiberglass. Um, you know, the fiberglass industry is a huge industry, and, and they make a great product. But most of the time, it's not installed properly. The way it's supposed to be installed is that the wall cavity is supposed to be completely full of fiberglass. There's not supposed to be any, any holes or openings to allow air to move around in a convective loop. And that's rarely done. In fact, you can go out on some of the, uh, uh, like, YouTube and uh, there's one interesting one on HGTV where they're uh, actually uh, telling you how to install it, and they're literally pushing it back into the wall cavity and creating these 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 cavities that are going to uh, keep the keep the insulation from doing the job it's supposed to do. So what I, what R value alone can mislead the consumer because you say, well, R value is R value. And really what you want is building performance and wall performance. And so you need to make sure that whatever you're putting in that wall cavity fills it up completely. That's a great point. In uh, you know, I've, I've been to a few seminars where it was discussed in detail. And it, they, you know, you can measure the R value of a material, but how the material works when it's installed into a component or a system uh, is not oftentimes measured. They're actually working on that now, trying to figure out what the what the true R value of the wall is, not the R value of the insulation put in or on the wall. And that's a great point. Thanks for bringing that up, Barry. Cliff, anything you'd like to finish up with? Yeah, I think, Barry, how do you uh, address clients who have concerns about moisture being trapped in their wall cavities? Well... It's, it's a complex subject. Um, I, I, if someone has a concern about that, you want to alleviate it. And, of course, we have moisture meters. We can literally, you know, bore holes in walls. And sometimes that's the best way. If someone has anxiety about any kind of an issue, sometimes it's better just to go ahead and address it rather than to try to argue about it. Um, but ultimately, if there's a moisture problem, it can be verified one way or the other. So that's what I would... You know, a lot of times people are worried about products, for instance, the uh, cellulose insulation that has all these boric, uh, boric acid in it. There's this concern. I was talking to a contractor the other day, and he was wanting to make sure, of course, we're here in the winter, he was wanting to make sure that he didn't put his drywall on too soon. And I was like, well, even if you did, there, there's so much boric acid in this cellulose, it's like I don't think any kind of bacteria, uh, bacteria or mold would have, a, uh, would have a chance of surviving. Even if it stayed wet a little while, you know, it's, it's basically a toxic environment for mold. So, uh, you know, drywall, uh, dry, wallboard, it pretty much absorbs moisture. And so um, I think a lot of times there's a lot more anxiety about what's going on in the walls than is verified, that, that is, should be. 
But the best way, I think, to address it is just to go right in and test and find out is, is there elevated moisture content or not. All right. Well, Barry, before we go, we always like to make sure you get the last word. Is there anything that uh, you would like to add or, or anything that uh, we missed? Well, first of all, I want to thank you for your show. I've really enjoyed I go out and run, and when I run, I, I, I basically listen to podcasts of your show, so it's been very educational for me. Uh, also, I know that there have been some discussions about fair and balanced. I think that you have a very balanced show. I mean, as far as I can tell, you basically bring people with a variety of opinions and ideas on and let them make their case. So I, I can't imagine a more balanced show than the one you've got. Thanks for that. We do appreciate that. I know that got a smile out of Cliff and myself. We uh, we do we try, try our best. Yeah. And uh, well, what I'd like to do before we go is make sure we thank this week's guest, Mr. Barry Westbrook, the certified industrial hygienist and Doc Air from uh, the Nashville, Tennessee area. Thanks again for joining us, Barry, and we hope to have you back again sometime soon. Thank you very much. I'm honored to be on the show. Our pleasure. Okay, I also want to make sure I thank my co-host, the Z-Man. It was good today, Joe. Another great week. Uh, Good to be back in the studio. Austin, Stone Cold, Novak at the controls. Good job. Of course, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. But most importantly, all of you out there, our our growing group of loyal listeners, thanks for uh, texting in some of those questions, Big John in Florida and a few others. Uh, Please come back and join us again next week for the next edition of IAQ Radio. There's a leak in the soul building, and my soul has got to move. I tell you, my soul has got to move. I tell you, my soul has got to move. There's a leak in the soul building, and my soul. I got another building, building not made by hand. Now there's a leak in the soul building. This has been another IAQ Radio production. Call recording has been completed.